Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. I do encourage you this morning to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. And as you're turning there, I'll take a brief minute to remind you of where we have been so far in the Gospel of Mark. We've seen Jesus' identity as the long-promised Messiah and Son of God. We've learned of Jesus' mission to announce the kingdom of God and invite all who hear him to enter it. We've witnessed Jesus' authority and power, which led the disciples and the crowds to respond with astonishment and and growing interest as they came to hear him and to follow him and as he healed them of all their diseases. But today, as we conclude the first chapter of Mark, the story turns from these big picture public events to a more intimate account of Jesus as he's by himself and then as he's traveling with his disciples on the road. And these verses give us a a unique window into Jesus' heart. And so I want to read together Mark 1, 35 to 45. Hear God's word. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, let's go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. And moved with pity, He stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. It's just God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that you, by your spirit, would apply this word to our hearts this morning and draw us to Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. There are many different things that can reveal what we value and what our priorities are, what's important to us, and who we are in the core of our character. How we use our time, what we spend our money on, what decisions we make when competing priorities are facing us. Maybe our raw, immediate response to challenging people in situations. And I was thinking about this as all of these give us insight into hearts and tell us who we are. I was thinking about this as I rewatched one of my favorite superhero movies, Batman Begins. This movie is very clearly an action movie. 
There are no long monologues discussing Batman's feelings or emotions in this movie. You'll have to flip over to the period dramas to get that. And yet, this movie does reveal Batman's character, and we, we begin to understand and Batman's uh, hopes and, and, and who he is. And it does this by tracing specific events and how he responds and what he says. And so we begin to understand what he fears and what he desires and what he cares about as he makes these decisions. Well, I think our passage does something similar this morning. It doesn't relate anything of the content of Jesus' prayers or his speeches. There's nothing that we have in Mark like we have in in John, which gives us this full account of what Jesus is feeling and thinking and praying. But the passage does slow down and show us Jesus' decisions and his actions. And in doing so, it gives us this morning a threefold window into the heart of Jesus. And my goal this morning is to look into each of these three windows together that we might better know our Savior. So let's begin in verse 35 with window number one, which shows us Jesus' desire for prayer. As a brief reminder, in the verses preceding what we read this morning, we learned that the entire town had come to Jesus to be healed and that he might cast out demons, but that none of that started until after the sun went down when the Sabbath regulations were over. Now that must have been a late and exhausting night to wait until after the sun goes down and then have the whole town come to you for healing and help. And yet, In our passage, in verse 35, the Greek opens with three different words to emphasize how early Jesus got up the next morning. The first word means early in the morning, and it typically refers to the fourth watch of the night, which was between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. The second word is the word exceedingly, so exceedingly early in that fourth watch watch of the night. And then the third word literally means while it is still night. And so the Greek puts together three words to give us this sense of Jesus rising exceedingly early with the full darkness of night still upon him in order to pray. Now, I know that there are some of you that can maddeningly naturally wake up at four in the morning and continue about your day as if nothing unusual has happened. But in general, this kind of early wake-up communicates an intense desire or need. It communicates a high priority, which leads us to get up before everyone else to make sure that our purpose will not be distracted or crowded out by the demands of our day. And for Jesus, that intense desire, that overwhelming priority, is to be alone in communion with God in prayer. And the, and, and the Gospels emphasize this and show us this about Jesus again and again. After healing many here in chapter 1, Jesus rises early to pray. After feeding the 5,000 who are then ready to make Jesus king, Jesus departs to a desolate place and prays. Before naming his 12 disciples, Jesus, it says, spent the whole night in prayer. In the Gospel of Luke, we read that Jesus was praying at his baptism. He was praying at his transfiguration. And of course, he was praying in the garden before his arrest and betrayal. So even the Son of God, even as the Son of God, 
Jesus demonstrates a deep need for and dependence upon talking with his Father in prayer. A 19th century Bishop J.C. Ryle writes, Jesus' very perfection was a perfection kept up through the exercise of prayer. But I hope we, I think, see that Jesus did not just need prayer. Jesus also clearly delighted in prayer. It was a singular joy for Jesus, a source of comfort and strength for Jesus to talk with his Father. Over in John chapter 17 in his high priestly prayer, the prayer reveals Jesus' intimacy with the Father and the Father's love for him that would make those times of prayer such a joy and a delight for him. And if Jesus so desperately needed such time in prayer, how much more do we in our weakness, in our sinfulness, in our natural distance from God and distraction by the world, in ongoing spiritual battles day by day by day, how much more do we need time in prayer with God? And if Jesus delighted in talking with God, how much more unexpectedly thrilling should it be for us who for good reason were without hope and without God in the world due to our sin, who have been welcomed back into intimate conversation and fellowship with the God of gods who loves us and cares for us, how much more should we delight in times of prayer with God? Of course, The reality is our prayers are also a window into our hearts. And I think that that window often seems to show how little we believe we need God, thinking we have things fairly well under control or looking to other things to solve our challenges. I think that window seems to show often how little we desire God himself. Of course, if we really need something, we go to him. But if we don't really need something... We don't run to delight in that fellowship with God. I think that window seems to show how little we desire spiritual fruit. To quote Ryle one more time, he asks, What shall we say to those who do pray but give little time to their prayers? Asking little, they must expect to have little. Seeking little, they cannot be surprised if they possess little. It will always be found that when prayers are few, grace and strength and peace and hope are small. For prayer is our means of spiritual fruit. Now, I know that every, every Christian that I've ever talked to, I think I certainly speak for myself, feels guilty about not praying more seems to be a common denominator in spiritual disciplines. But let's remember that the cost of not praying is not a grumpy God because we haven't prayed more. The cost of not praying is the loss of our own joy and comfort, strength and communion with the Lord. The cost of not praying is the loss of spiritual fruit in our lives. And so perhaps we might spend less time feeling guilty about not praying and spend more time instead focusing on our need for the Lord, on our desire for fellowship with Him, of our yearning for spiritual fruit in our lives and in his kingdom. And perhaps we might fix our eyes on Jesus, looking through the window into his heart, that we might be encouraged to draw near to God in prayer as he did, to place the priority on fellowship with our God that he did.
That's what we see through window number one into the heart of Jesus. But then we move on to window number two into Jesus' heart, and we find this in verses 36 to 39, which show us Jesus' priority in his ministry. Jesus is off in the joy of communion with his Father, When his disciples wake up, probably a a little bit tired, but jazzed by the success of the previous day, and they realize Jesus is gone. Where did he go? And they start searching for him. Maybe he's just in the other room or in the house, and they can't find him. And so they start to search for him everywhere, and finally they get to the desolate places and find Jesus there in prayer. And the Greek words in the text here would indicate a bit of frustration with Jesus or exasperation with Jesus. He's not really living up to their expectations. He's really letting them down on the job here with the opportunities he had. Of course, they must have been even more caught off guard by Jesus' response when they did find him, because just as his fame is growing and the numbers to build off of are there, Jesus says, let's leave. Let's leave and go to a different town that I may preach the kingdom of God there, for that is why I came out. Now, there's a bit of a debate and interpretation over how to interpret those words, for that is why I came out. Some believe that Jesus is saying, the reason I came out here to this deserted place is so that I could escape and go on to the next towns. Others believe that Jesus is saying, the reason I came out from heaven was so that I might preach to all the towns. There's not really anything in the text that can uh, decide that for us, but I think we'd have to say that both are true because the purpose of Jesus' actions that morning were driven by his purpose in coming from heaven, that he might preach the kingdom of God to more towns in Israel. Of course, Jesus' response here is not a callous refusal to meet the needs of uh, people in that town. Rather, Jesus knows that the physical needs are temporary. But in the kingdom of God, they will find that all wrongs are righted. Their hearts will be set free. Every tear will be wiped away and all things will be restored and made new forever. And so his priority is not to spend time meeting every physical need or healing here. His priority is to preach the kingdom of God, which is the means by which every sufferer and every sinner will find healing and hope. That is Jesus' priority. This priority also explains, I think, why Jesus so often told people not to tell people what he had done for them. We saw that earlier in this chapter when he told the demons, he forbade them from saying who he was. We see it in our passage in just a few minutes with the leper who he says, don't tell anything to anyone. Why does Jesus do that? Well, I think the reason is because spreading his fame only makes it harder for him to enter the towns to preach. We see that at the end of the passage. He was not able to enter those towns to preach. And not only that, but it also perpetuates the misconception that people had at this stage that he's a miracle worker who's here to do all of these great signs and wonders. And so it would distract people from the main purpose that he had of inviting them into the kingdom of God. In fact, you'll notice if you read through the Gospels, that while the disciples are sent out to proclaim the kingdom of God, Jesus consistently restrains demons, those he heals, and his disciples from preaching him until after the resurrection, when who he is and what he has come to do are finally clear. Then, but only then, 
Are they commanded to spread his name to every uh, country under heaven that men might be saved? So it's important for us, I think, to remember Jesus' priority on the gospel because it's easy for us also to slip into wanting the difficulties of this life to be fixed and our felt needs to be met by God. And it's, it's easy for us to begrudge God for not solving our temptations, our anxieties, our depressions, or preventing our sufferings. And, and we forget that all of these things take place in this life Yes, under the sovereign will of God. But on the things that we want, the ending of temptations, the ending of suffering and anxieties, those are the eternal fruit of the coming kingdom of God with Christ that we wait for. God's desire now is to use whatever means necessary to draw us deeper into dependence upon Him, to show us the poverty of this life to satisfy Perish the thought that our life would be so good that we think that this life could satisfy. It's to point us again and again to our need for Jesus who died to take away our sin and rose again to give us new life by His Spirit that we might be once and for all reconciled to Him and restored to Him. See, in this life we wait together with all the saints for the last day when we will fully enter the kingdom of God by faith in Jesus and then all things will be well. And our hearts need to remember that as we watch Jesus' priority, not to meet every felt immediate need in this life, but to preach the kingdom of God, which is our hope. Well, that, I think, is a second window into Jesus' heart, what he prioritizes, what is important, the preaching of the kingdom of God. But Jesus did not ignore people's suffering because of his focus on the kingdom of God. He did not have a callous lack of concern for them. And to see the depth of his love and his compassion, we need to take a good hard look through window number three in verses 40 to 45. Now to understand the situation in verses 40 to 45, we have to try to put ourselves in the position of this leper. Leprosy in first century Israel came with physical, social, and spiritual consequences. Physically, leprosy was a damaging disease. It was a a decaying of the flesh as the nerves and the tissue died. It would eventually turn white, then lead to disfigurement as the flesh would decay. uh, Fingers could fall off. Things like that would happen. So physically, there were consequences. But even more damaging was the social consequences. Because at this time, they thought that leprosy was highly contagious. And so there was significant social fear of lepers. And in order to make sure that no one would have to bear the burden of coming into contact with a leper, lepers were required to make their appearance as repugnant as possible. They were required to verbally announce, calling out unclean, unclean, whenever they, wherever they went, so that people would know they were coming And they were required, according to the law, to stay at least 50 paces away from any other human being. Can you imagine living life under those requirements? Can you imagine having every person turn from you with visible fear and disgust on their faces? Can you imagine being required by law to isolate from every other human being? not just during a COVID quarantine for 10 days, but indefinitely? 
And then, of course, there were the spiritual consequences. Because a leper was not just sick. You will note that the gospel talks a lot about sick people being healed, but leprosy is always talked about in its uncleanness. Because in the Old Testament, a leper was unclean and so barred from communion with God's people, but also barred from access to God. They could not participate in the festivals. They could not bring sacrifices to the temple. They could not come into the presence of God in the tabernacle or temple. And not only that, but just as leprosy was often uh, a curse of God, as we saw it on Miriam and, and on Gehazi and others in the Old Testament, it was often considered that leprosy was a punishment from God. So there were spiritual consequences as well. And you add these physical consequences, these social consequences, these spiritual consequences, and all this explains the words of the leper in verse 40. He knows Jesus that must, must come from God. And he knows that he needs Jesus. And he is absolutely confident that Jesus has the power to heal him. But what he doesn't know is whether Jesus would be willing to heal him. Would Jesus, a prophet from God, be willing to heal with all of the stigma and repugnance and sinful uncleanness that clings to him? That is what the leper doesn't know. I think, by the way, that this is the struggle for some of us as well. I don't think that many of us really doubt the power of God or the ability of God to do about anything. But I think many of us at times wrestle over the heart of God. Whether he really has a full-throttled, unreserved willingness to draw near to and to love someone like us, even if we have repented of our sin. Maybe it's the guilt and the shame of repeated sin that we know we've committed over and over and over again. Maybe it's something we feel ashamed over, like a public failure or a past divorce. Maybe it's just our relative insignificance or lack of anything special we have to offer God. And we wonder whether God isn't at least slightly skeptical of us, if not unwilling to commit the fullness of his love and his fellowship to us. We know God's able, of course, but is he willing? With all the physical and social and spiritual consequences of leprosy, with all these barriers built as high as the heavens to separate the leper from anyone else, Jesus reaches out his hand and touches the leper and says, I am willing. Be clean. I am willing. Those words are stunning. And not only is Jesus willing, but remember, he could have stayed the required 50 paces away from the leper and healed with a word with no problem. But he doesn't do that. He reaches across the barriers, across the uncleanness, and he touches him, letting him feel the warmth of human touch, perhaps for the first time in years. You know, I can barely pull myself together to touch my own baby when they blow out their diaper. And here is Jesus reaching out to touch the decayed flesh of an unclean, outcast leper. And the text tells us that Jesus did this because he was moved with compassion. Now, interestingly, there's an early manuscript that has a different word here and says that Jesus was moved by anger rather than compassion. 
It's an interesting variant, and there's not really a clear answer as to which word was original. But far from being a contradiction, I think that both words actually describe the same response. For when Jesus sees the physical, social, and spiritual wreckage of sin on an image bearer of God, might he not feel a surge of anger because of his compassion, like we might feel when a child comes covered by blood from being shoved down by a bully on the playground? That surge of compassion and anger? Because both emotions may belong together, springing from the heart of Jesus and his love for this suffering man. But my hope is that we don't just see this as a random act of kindness by Jesus. This is a window into the very heart of God himself. In his beautiful book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland argues that when we think of God, we must think of God in his glory in the terms that God himself uses to describe his glory and his character. And remember back in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, when the Lord told Moses that he was going to proclaim his glory to him, describe and reveal his glory to him, and he was going to hide him in the cleft of the rock while he did so. Well, how does God describe himself? When God is describing his own glory, what terms does he use to do so? He declares the Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but by no means clearing the guilty. Do you hear the heart of God as he describes himself? Yes, God ends by reminding us that he will not unjustly ignore the guilty. That tethers our understanding of God's glove. But do you notice that almost the entire self-revelation of God is not talking about his power or his majesty? Almost the entire self-revelation of God is variations on the theme of his forgiving grace, his steadfast love, his abounding faithfulness. Or maybe you consider Jeremiah 31, verse 20, after chapters and chapters describing Israel's sin. God declares, Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he, this sinful people, my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Do you hear the self-revelation of God, how he describes his own heart himself? And can we really doubt the depth of the love of God if he so loved the world that he sent even his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have eternal life? See, I suspect that you and I are still too often slow to give full credit to the deep compassion and the wide mercy, and the warm love, and the willingness of God to pursue us and welcome us as he describes himself on page after page of his word. That is what we see in the heart of Jesus. And the question is, if that is who Jesus is, why would we not come to him more quickly and more fully? He has such a gentle heart of compassion. Now, I want to ask as we 
come to an end how we should apply this vision of Jesus' heart to our own lives. But before we do that, surely Pastor Sinclair Ferguson is right when he says we are often too quick to jump to ask, so what should I do? When instead we ought to first sit and just admire Jesus and worship Him and thank Him and let our hearts be drawn to Him. Because only once we have rejoiced in the heart of Jesus, alive with its love and its compassion for us, only then can we begin to ask, do I have that same kind of love and compassion for others? And that is really the question every one of us should ask as we gaze on the character of Christ this morning, isn't it? Because I think we're all exceptionally good at coming up with reasons and excuses for our lack of love and care for those around us. Especially maybe those who disagree with us or those who seem to have been irresponsible in life or those who are just not easy people to love. And yet throughout the history of the church, it has repeatedly in culture after culture and century after century been the love and the compassion of God's people even for their personal and cultural enemies that have attracted them to the gospel to faith in Jesus Christ. Patricia St. John shares the story of a young nurse who went as a missionary to, I believe it was Southeast Asia. She was eager to love the people with the love of God. She showed every kindness she could and she treated them with gentleness and a smile. And yet the people came and left quickly and seemed to be eager to be out of her presence. She was discouraged and could not understand their response until a a believer from that culture came to visit her and, and told her the problem. She did not know the language, this missionary, and so she had been doing all of her work through an interpreter. An interpreter, it turns out, who despised the poor people of that town. And so it was that the missionary's love and kindness was completely hidden by the rough and rude treatment of the interpreter. But doesn't Scripture tell us that in this life, on this earth, the world would see the character of God through us so that those who bear his name are in some ways an interpreter of the love of God? And I fear that all too often we are interpreters who mask the heart of God by our fearful responses or angry responses or impatient responses. And the danger to us will only increase as the cultural hostility towards Christianity increases. And we find ourselves more and more tempted to arch our backs towards those on the other side. Of course, God has called us to speak the truth and counter lies. Of course, there can ultimately be no true love untethered from the truth of God's word. But I wonder if this passage and its picture of Jesus' heart and his love may give us a more needed reminder this morning. And I think it's important also for us to to say that this is not a statement of missions strategy, as if it should be our strategy to go out and love people. I'm arguing instead that love is what should naturally and instinctively ooze out of a heart that is in fellowship with Christ. See, Jesus didn't go through here calculating who was likely to become a Christian and who wasn't as he healed Jesus had compassion and healed the whole city 
who came to him with diseases and demons. Later in Mark, we'll see him look with love and compassion on the rich young ruler who rejected him. As one commentator puts it, love was Jesus' being, not his strategy. And so for us, we aren't to ask what end might come if we would just love better. We are rather to embody the love of God such that anyone who bumps into us would bump into love and compassion and warmth and mercy that looks like and attracts them to Jesus. That is my hope for us as we look at this passage this morning. Because as we come to an end, my hope is that this passage provides us with three windows into the heart of Jesus. Windows that show us his desire for prayer and communion with God. A window that shows us the priority on preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. But a window into the heart of compassion springing from the very character of God himself. And my hope is that these three windows will attract us to Jesus And that they will encourage us to come to him and bring every sin and every suffering before him as the one who willingly invites us into his presence, knowing even more than we know ourselves, our brokenness and our need of him. And my hope is that these windows will shape our hearts and our lives after his image as his spirit enables us more and more to live for him and to live like him to the glory of his name. Let's pray. Our God, forgive us for not thinking of you as you have described yourself. Forgive us for being hesitant to believe the depth of the love and the compassion of your heart. And I pray, Father, that this story, this passage this morning would draw us to Jesus would draw us to the welcoming presence of our Savior. And I pray that even as we are drawn to Jesus, we would also be drawn to his example. And so drawn to prayer and communion with you and looking to the hope of the gospel and the kingdom of God. Drawn to a life that others might see the heart of God through us for the glory of your name. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.